Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings. Welcome to the Corporate Majlis Podcast, where we chat with successful Muslims and learn about their journey in the corporate world. I'm your host, Ali, and each week I have a guest from the Muslim community. We discuss their successes, their challenges, and a lot more. Welcome to this week's installment of the Corporate Majlis Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Sister Maryam Ardati, who is known as a death doula in the community. In the Quran, Allah says, Every soul shall taste death. You'll be paid your wages in full on the day of rising. Anyone who is distanced from the fire and admitted to the garden has triumphed. The life of this world is only the enjoyment of delusion. And the Prophet said, Remember frequently the thing that cuts off pleasures. That is death. We talked about her journey into this profession and how she contributes to the community. I'm a death doula and a funeral director and I work uh, predominantly with the Muslim community. Never in a million years would I have thought, you know, going back 20 years ago, that I would ever be working in the death care sector. So it never registered on the radar. It was never something that I aspired to do. But um, now that I know it's my calling, it's all it's all I want to do. When I was in my late teens um, and thinking about what career to choose, you know, you get to year 10, you've got to sit with a career advisor, they need to talk to you about what you want to do. I had absolutely no clue. Um, I knew that I loved science and then I, I, loved, um, I loved English. So they're kind of polar opposites, really. You either go into maths and science or you go into kind of English and history. But I, I was sitting in between two major subjects that I absolutely loved. So I really didn't know what I was doing right through uh, to year 10. Um, I'd already taken on a job in retail at the age of 15. So I was working, um, but I, I honestly did not know where life was going to take me. By the time I graduated, I finished year 12, alhamdulillah, I got a very good ATAR, opened up a lot of doors for me. I still um, wasn't too sure. So I chose to enroll in a double law degree, um, medical science law. And I thought, yep, this is what I wanted to do. But then I had an elder in the community take me aside and say, look, Mariam, um, law is actually haram. It's haram to study law and practice law in a non-Muslim country. Uh, think again. So like right when I'd convinced myself this is what I was going to do, I completely had to change pace. So then I was stuck. Um, so I pulled out the University of Sydney UAC guide. And these were the two criteria that I had. Criteria number one was shortest possible degree. So I wanted to go in and out of uni as quick as I could. And the second criteria was the highest earning degree postgraduate. Um, it was a health information management. So combined like health and IT together. And that's how I chose my degree. I had no idea what I was studying. Didn't even look at the subject list. Um, I just knew it was at a local campus at Lidcombe. And um, when I first started and I enrolled in university, I remember the lady at the desk saying to me, you're 17, you're actually the youngest enrolled at this campus. And I was like, cool, I'll be out of here in three years. This is awesome. Alhamdulillah. So, yeah, that's actually how I chose. My, and the degree was amazing, subhanAllah. It was one of the best things I ever did because it was such a versatile degree. So it touched on medical science. It had law. It had IT. Um, and that's really, that, was, that ended up being the future for the health system anyway. So it was a lovely a lovely start. But um, after graduation, well, just before graduation, actually, I, I picked up a second job. I met my husband at uni. So we were working really hard so that we could um, save to get married. My father was quite adamant on making sure that um, his daughters, so we're, I'm one of five girls, no boys. 
dad was really, really adamant and mum was really adamant that we'd all have to finish our degrees first before we got married. My dad used to always say, look, I don't have any brothers to look after you. If something happens to you, you need to know how to stand on your own two feet, right? And this is one thing that, Yanni, I would want to instill in my children, that you really do need to prepare, particularly girls. I honestly would say particularly girls because, you know, divorce rates are so high and if they end up without a skill set, without, um, without the knowledge to, to get a good job and look after themselves if something happens, then they really are going to be the ones most adversely affected if a marriage breaks down. And this was always in the back of my dad's head. So um, I took a second job. So after the retail job, I was also working at the airport, um, Sydney airport. I was doing catering and um, working for Qantas. Um, while trying to finish a degree and save to get married at the same time. So life was really hectic, alhamdulillah. But um, I graduated in March on a Friday and my wedding was that Sunday. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, everything had to fall into place quickly, alhamdulillah. Um, and then my first job out of uni, again, very unconventional, was actually at a drug and alcohol rehab centre, an outpatient clinic. Um, out in the city. Um, I, I knew it was going to be a challenge breaking that news to my parents because, you know, not many parents want their 22-year-old daughter working at a drug and alcohol rehab centre in the city. So it took me two months to actually tell my parents exactly where I worked. So in the beginning, I was like, I just worked for this big hospital in the city, mom. I'm so excited. My parents were so proud of me. Um, I'd go to work really early. I had to leave because we, we lived out in the southwest and commuting to the city was like a good hour, hour and a half in peak hour traffic. So I would commute every morning. Um, I'd leave the house at like six o'clock in the morning. And um, then two months later, I sat my mom down. I said, mom, I, I actually work at an outpatient drug and alcohol clinic and I I have to open the methadone clinic at seven o'clock in the morning. And she was absolutely mortified. Uh, you know, how could you, aren't you scared? Someone's going to mug you. You know, parents always think like worst case scenario, something, something really bad is going to happen to you because you're working with people like that. But subhanAllah, she, you know, mum's history in the community is um, in welfare. Mum worked at a women's refuge for many years. She worked um, as part of the team at the um, a local Muslim women's association. So we always, were privy to those who were the most hardest or adversely affected by their lived experiences. People who had suffered DV, um, suffered the loss of a child, um, were in financial crisis. Mum would always come home with stories about people's really, um, really upsetting uh, stories about what people were experiencing. So things for us were always very much grounded in reality, alhamdulillah. So um, I, I think inherited that from my mum. I'm a big empath and I didn't see a problem whatsoever working in a space like that. So yeah, then she accepted it and she was very proud of me and very supportive in the work that I did. Again, I stayed there for a couple of years, got to where I needed to go, was promoted to middle management, alhamdulillah, made a lot of really good friends in that space. Um, and then I went back out to the southwest and I got an area position, which ordinarily would take someone about 10 years to get but alhamdulillah um, at the age of 24 I was like area manager for community health out at Southwest so there were five hospital community health facilities that um, I was supposed to be managing or overseeing particularly with the rollout of the um, 
paperless medical records, so the electronic health record. That was basically what I was supposed to be doing. I'd go to management meetings where people assumed I was someone's PA. <laughs> I used to tell fibs about my age. I used to tell them I was 27 because, you know, it's, it was really unusual to have someone at my, my age sitting at a middle, middle management meeting of a really large area health service. Um, and then I realised that, look, government doesn't really like funding community health. It's not something that's given priority. It was going to take a good 10 years before we got the funding to do what we were supposed to be doing. And I couldn't wait. I really just couldn't wait. So I resigned from my position. And um, if we could backtrack a bit, I became really, really um, almost obsessed with the fitness industry at a very, very young age. And it always sat in the back of my mind. I was training twice a day right through university. Um, I started lifting weights when I was 14, so I was always into fitness. Um, and when I resigned from my position at Community Health, I was like, you know what, I actually want to do something that I love. I actually want to do something that I love. I don't just want to do a job that's going to earn me a lot of money. I want to do something that I love doing. So I bought a business um, at the age of 24, and um, it was a fitness center. And I renovated it and um, worked really, really hard. I was doing 12-hour days, uh, six days a week. Um, took on, yeah, took on managerial role, director role, uh, personal trainer role, cleaner role. Um, yeah, I was basically everything for that, for that business for a good two years and a half. And it took everything out of me. It really did. It sapped the life out of me. It, it was... Um, it's something that you don't really sit and think about. When you think about doing something that you love, you think it's always going to be good, right? It's, you know, you're not really working because you're passionate about, you know, what you're doing. In reality, it doesn't always go, go that way. Um, there's a lot of hard work that goes into a business, a lot of sacrifice, personal sacrifice. You know, I wasn't seeing my family very often. Um, I was hardly communicating with my mum unless I was, you know, breaking down at how tired and exhausted I was. I was hardly seeing my dad. My dad is a really important part of my life. You know, he was the epitome of self-sacrifice for his family. Um, and I missed their company for a good few years. Um, and that really took a lot out of me, subhanAllah. So basically what I thought was going to be, um, you know, the business I'd keep for the rest of my life ended up becoming really um, a deep kind of rabbit hole of misery towards the end of my time there. Um, and subhanAllah, it ended just as dramatically as it started. Um, it ended with a huge car accident. Um, I was, I just, you know, locked up the shop on a Saturday afternoon and I was on my way home. I had a pretty powerful V6 car that I used to love driving. And I got into cars because of my dad. My dad was a panel beat on Michelle and he was very good at what he did. So I spent a lot of time out under the cars with him. So uh, I, had a, I had a car accident. It was um, myself and a truck. Uh, the car caught on fire. It was, it was quite dramatic. The road was closed in both directions of traffic. I crawled out of the passenger side. Um, SubhanAllah, completely unscathed. Nothing, not a cut, not a bruise. Shaken, really shaken, like I dropped to the floor as soon as I, I got out of the car. But that, for me, that was my turning point in life. Um, I remember one person saying to me, she was a very young girl, she was 19 years old, she was doing the childminding at the business um, at the time because we looked after children while mums came in and trained. And she said to me, she said, Mariam, um, 
you're a good person. You know, you're praying your prayers. You're an observant Muslim. I wasn't in hijab back then. I wasn't, probably wasn't as good as I probably should have been at that time in my life because I had, Allah had blessed me with so much and I just, I just didn't see it that way. I wasn't a very grateful person. And she said to me, she said, Mariam, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, you know, you're asking Allah for so many things. You're asking Allah to, you know, bless you with your business, to bring you a sense of happiness, to give you fulfillment. You're asking for so much. And yet Allah only asks you for so little. And you can't even do that. SubhanAllah, literally, it was, a, it was like a, a light bulb moment. And she said that to me like about a week before that car accident. And after that car accident, that's all I could think about. All I could think about was her advice. And then I said, no, 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 I've got to turn things around. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the turning point in, in my life. So I, um, I then embarked on a completely different journey. Uh, again, as I said in the beginning, this sector, you know, washing and caring and performing the rituals for the dead and being involved in a lot of um, mourning and grief and loss and then trying to see the beauty in all of that was never, ever something that... Um, that I ever thought of doing. SubhanAllah. This is just, um, yeah, where life took me. And so that's, and this is what you do now, sort of like your full-time job. Well, I wish it, I wish it was my full-time job. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not my full-time job. It's what I want to be my full-time job. I'm still working towards that end, inshallah. But um, it's, what, it's what is fulfilling my purpose at the moment. So going back to that advice that I received, you're right. Like she was right. She was a hundred percent right. What was I doing for the sake of Allah? I wasn't doing, I really wasn't doing much, you know, to be able to fulfill your prayers and fast Ramadan and, uh, you know, be dutiful to your parents and be ethical with the people that you work and deal with. That's like standard. That is basic, basic, basic. But when you turn your entire life's purpose, into serving people for the sake of Allah, that's the game changer. That is the game changer there. When you, when you please Allah, you've pleased the creator and his creation. But when you please the creation, you've most likely don't just please the creation. You haven't really necessarily pleased the creator. That's exactly right. And then what you do is you end up spending your life searching for that fulfillment. You know, and you, you know, some people will find that in making a lot of money. Some people find that in, you know, the relationships that they form. Some people find that in, you know, buying a lot of things, which is what we do living in the consumerist culture that we live in at the moment. Um, we, my God, we accumulate so many things in life, subhanAllah. Um, but you, you'll keep searching. You'll keep running and you'll keep searching until you change your purpose. When you look back, at your life right what would you say your biggest challenges as a muslim have been to be honest with you my biggest challenges were maintaining um a good moral compass because we live in a society that's just full of corruption um at every turn you know it's morally corrupt it's um you know there's very little you know, business ethics that you see out, out, out there in, in, the, in the real world. I'm talking in, in practice. Yeah, in theory, you know, on people's websites and, you know, the way people talk about how they do business and what they do. Yeah, it all looks morally good. But um, when you actually step into that, that world, there's so much of it that is corrupt right to the core. There's a lot of uh, deception. 
there's a lot of um, you know misinformation, uh, and it's all for um, monetary gain. You know, we people people sell their souls, Subhanallah, just to make to make money, and and that you know realigning yourself with um, you know the the foundation of an Islamic society is its ethics, and to try and keep that at the forefront of what you do in such a oppressive and corrupt world, wallahi, that's a, it's a huge challenge. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. Being a woman and uh, embarking on solo business ventures, that, that is um, a huge challenge, really, it really is. Um, to avoid being undermined, to avoid being thought of as not knowing enough. Like I remember sitting in a, in a business meeting very, very early on as I was negotiating a lease where um, the landlord li literally turned to me and said, what would you know about this? You know, you, what, what would you know about signing a lease or terms and conditions? Why don't you just go and take it to your dad or your lawyer or your uncle and get him to read it? And I was like, um, yeah, so I've had a lot of things thrown um, my way. Uh, men trying to come in and muscle in on a business idea or a business venture, thinking or assuming that I wouldn't know how to run it successfully. Um, yeah, just a lot of assumptions. That patriarchy is very much there, um, alive and well. And I now prefer to um, work with women because I find navigating uh, that is a lot easier. SubhanAllah, than working under men. Yeah, yeah. How do you define success? And have you been successful in what you've set out to achieve? Let me tell you that definition has evolved over the last two decades. So if you were to ask the 23-year-old me, how do you define success? Well, it would be making a lot of money, driving a nice car, um, having a very successful business, it was very shallow, I think, looking back. Um, because we live in a world where, subhanAllah, everywhere you look is competition, right? So success looks like, you know, a lot of bling. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know this, this is how we've, society has, has um, defined success for us. And I, and I fell for it. I really did. I was part of that culture where I just wanted to make it big. Uh, and I really feel for the youth. Uh, coming up because it's, you know, with the advent of social media and, uh, you know, every time you open up Instagram or, or Twitter, someone's competing or showing or um, boasting about something that they've got or something that they've done or, or something that they've, they've, that they've achieved. We really are, we find ourselves now, subhanAllah, in the time where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually said that it's not poverty that I fear for you. Um, but what I fear for you is that this dunya will be presented for you, like spread out in front of you, just as it was for those that came before you. Very famous hadith. And then you will compete for it. You will fight for it. And it will destroy you just as it destroyed them. Um, and that's where really I thought that I was heading. Had I continued to define success in that paradigm, it would have destroyed me. Now, uh, subhanAllah, the, the bar has really lifted. So success for me is being able to see meaningful societal change in the way that we live because we now are more mindful of the fact that this life is temporary. So that's why I've invested so much time in workshops, in education sessions, in presentations, in seminars. Um, that's why I, I make so much time for families in particular that are going through um, an imminent loss 
of a loved one. This is where I can see that when they come out of that experience and they send me a text or they give me a call and they say, this has now changed my life, that's success for me. Yeah, so it's a lot more personal. Walk me through a journey of a, I mean, I don't know if you call them clients. I mean, in, in our corporate lingo, we would call them a client, regardless of what service we're providing, but I'm sure you don't call them a client per se. But if I were to use the term client, walk me through the the journey a client takes and you know given that someone a beloved has passed away they've reached out to you what happens what's the process so as a death doula or a funeral director i kind of come into that end of life journey at different points um, in a person's experience as a death doula it's very much obviously pre-death where um, someone may have been given a terminal diagnosis they may be struggling with the fact that you know there may be no more treatment options for them and that they've now been told that they don't have much time left. Um, it could be that uh, they have made peace with the fact that they're dying, but their family hasn't. So they may get me to kind of come in and have a discussion with their loved ones, trying to kind of align both of their expectations with where their life is heading or where their end is heading or what their death is going to look like. It could be that... Uh, the family has become really distraught because they need to make a very critical end-of-life decision and they're struggling to understand what the consequences of that decision might look like. So I may come in and kind of help them at, in that aspect. Or I may come in from right at the beginning, at the time of diagnosis, and right up until that person is taking their last breath. So I've had to be in that journey at any point in that kind of... Um, in that timeline and I can come in for a day I can come in for one phone call one meeting or I can be there with the client for two to three months until they're right at the end and I've had to do that on multiple occasions um, my main role is to find the practical and spiritual support for that person so that they get through that end-of-life experience in a good way so they have the best death possible and that, that sounds a bit odd to talk about the best death, um, but there are things such you know there, there is such thing as a good death and there is such thing as a bad death. And the way we we define that is whether or not a person is dying in a way that aligns with their values. So as a Muslim, you know I'd want to be in a space where, for example, I can orientate my bed towards the qibla, where I can have Quran playing in the background, where someone can come in and say their afkar next to me or say some dua that I can maybe reply amin to where someone can, you know, um, remind me of the hope and mercy of Allah, where someone can come and have a chat to me about Jannah, you know, and reassure me that Allah's promise is true. These are the types of discussions that as Muslims, they bring us comfort at the end of life. Um, but because we don't see death often, right? We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it sounds like. We don't know what those experiences are anymore. You know, over the last 90 to 100 years, this is a hidden experience. It's not something that we're familiar with. So we do need people to coach and support families through that so that it, um, as I said, it aligns with their values. We don't necessarily remember death. And as Muslims, we're taught to remember death often, um, you know, to the point where pray as if it's your last prayer, you're a traveler on this planet, you know, have your amal ready to go sort of thing. For me, for example, I'm a healthy 
I, I like to think I'm a healthy Muslim human being, but I'm going to die at some point and I don't know when that's going to happen. What are some of those tips that I should take from you just to, you know, make that experience of, or have that good death? My, my number one tip would probably be um, don't get too attached to this dunya. And when I mean that, uh, I mean people and things. So uh, if you constantly remind yourself that your spouse is not yours, your child is not yours, your parents are not yours, uh, all of these people will eventually leave you. Um, and they will return back to Allah. They were given to you as an amana for a fixed period of time. And they will always go back to Allah, which is why, subhanAllah, when we say, upon hearing of the death of a person, inna lillah wa inna ilayhi rajiun, this is just another verbal reminder that this was always going to happen. This person was always going to leave you and return back to Allah. So um, what that does is it then makes your time with those people more important right so we don't take our children for granted we don't take our parents for granted we don't take our our um, our family you know our brothers and sisters for granted we want to make sure that we're having positive experiences with them this is why allah reminds us to not cut ties with kinship um, to fulfill the rights of our parents to look after them in their old age because we're not going to have them forever and yet we say this you know, we read this in reminders, we listen to lectures where this is said, but how, how much do we really believe it to be true, right? I've seen family members that are around the deathbed of like a 96-year-old parent and still can't believe that they're dying. They're still pushing for every possible medical intervention to prolong that person's life because they just can't accept the fact that they're not going to be here anymore. And that to me is like, and of course, this is without judgment because everyone's experiences are their own. But I just think to myself, you know, how long did you think this person was going to stay here? You know, the body was never designed to live forever. It will always fail you, whether through a prolonged illness or a sudden death, it was always going to fail you. Um, and the one thing that we guaranteed for our children when we brought them into this world is that they're going to die. That's the only thing you guaranteed is that they're going to die. So, wallahi, when you reorientate your thinking to understanding that nothing in this life is going to last you forever, then it makes saying, I'm sorry, easier. It makes saying, I love you, easier. It makes, um, it, it makes you focus on your akhlaq and your adab. You never want to upset anyone. You never want to part ways with anybody on bad terms. You know, this is what, uh, this is what it did for me. This is what these constant reminders have done for me. Um, so yeah, nothing in this life is forever. Don't get too attached to possessions or people. Again, there's that very famous hadith that three things follow the believer to their grave, two things return and one thing remains. So your wealth, your family, and your, your good deeds follow you or your deeds follow you to your grave. Your deeds will remain with you. Your family and your wealth return to the life of the dunya. So, yeah, it's one of the best reminders. Where you are at now and when you look back at your life, do you have any regrets? SubhanAllah, I've actually never been the type of person that dwells too long in regret, right? I make a mistake. I give myself a fixed time to think about it, dwell over it, get upset about it, feel miserable about it, right? But then I, 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 I have a cut-off time and that's usually Maghrib. So I, I always time 
a walk around Maghreb. Okay, Maghreb time is like the best contemplation time for me. It's also significant metaphysically because we know that the angels change shift at around Maghreb. So it's almost like when the sky lights up with all these brilliant colors, we remind ourselves that we are part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves, right? And in that stage, I contemplate around a lot of the things that I've done that day. Some things I regret, some things I'm actually quite proud about. Alhamdulillah, so I give myself that break. But then after Maghreb, after the sun sets, I don't, I don't think about that anymore. I take the lesson from it, I pack it away, and then I move on. Uh, so I've been able to do that with every lived experience, whether it's good or bad. I can take the lessons from them. I can take the gems. Uh, I put them into practice in my life moving forward. Um, but I really don't hold on to much that I regret in my life, alhamdulillah. No, that's made me who I am. What do you do outside of all this? How do you keep yourself busy? Mm. Well, I'm, um, I'm a big reader. And um, two things I love doing, going for long walks, particularly around Maghreb time, um, and reading. So I've got a very long uh, audible list and a very long paperback list that I'm really, really enjoying working through. I'm one of those people that can read multiple books at the same time. That really annoys some people because <laughs> they need to start and finish something before they can move on. I actually don't need to do that. I'm quite comfortable starting multiple books and reading them all um, at the same time. So right now on Audible, I'm reading um, The Body Keeps the Score, which I'm finding absolutely amazing. Um, it's about surviving trauma and understanding the impact on trauma on your body. And on paperback, I'm reading a book by Margaret Rice called A Good Death. Not surprising. but um, <laughs> And the other book that I'm reading at the moment is a book by Jalal al-Din It's called healing after loss consoling the bereaved this is a gem subhanallah i could read this 50 times over and still learn something every time so um and what it does what this book does which is amazing is it really makes you long for barzakh and the akhirah i, I can't believe i'm saying this um, but i know that the pious predecessors would not necessarily wish for death but they would look forward to it because they, they viewed this dunya as a prison, right? You, you know, you're constantly checking your desires. You're constantly in a state of, you know, restraining yourself, your nafs and waging war against it. Yet we know that in the akhirah, you know, all of those restrictions are, are taken off, right? So they longed for that. And that's, that's really what I, I want to do. I want to long for the akhirah, for the everlasting. So yeah, reading, a lot of walking, a lot of nature walks. I go bike riding with the kids often. Um, and anything to do with being outdoors um, for me is great. I start the day really, really early. Um, so I love to kind of have a really quiet morning where I can kind of spend some time with myself and doing things that I love because the work that I do is quite heavy, right? So I need to focus on self-care. Uh, and I've done that more recently. I really wasn't a big proponent of it, but I've seen the um, ugly side of burnout. So I really try my best to look after myself in that sense. I can see in your background, you've got this beautiful gym set up, which is your home gym. Tell me a bit about that. So um, yeah, the last 20 years, I've, I'm a really big um, believer in physical activity, most um, specifically weight training. So for me, um, of course, as you age, your bone density decreases. 
So um, it's really important, particularly for women, to lift weights and do resistance training to keep their bone density um, up. So yeah, I'm sitting in my second home, which is my gym. I can spend hours in this place. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's my go-to place for, again, self-care. So it's my second office, really. Speaking of offices, how do you manage to stay productive at home? So um, I wake up pretty early, alhamdulillah. Um, I think if I didn't wake up early, I'd lose about three hours of productivity every day. I find that there's a lot of barakah in that time of day. So I can review emails. I can catch up on reading. Um, I can set out my checklist for the day. I'm a big checklist person. So I've got to mark things off as I go. Um, being physically active keeps me productive. If I don't train for a few weeks consecutively, I find that I'm, I'm a lot less productive, got a lot less energy. I fatigue quickly. I want to have regular naps. Um, so keeping physically fit, starting the day early, um, uh, getting a checklist going first thing in the morning and then working towards going through that during your day, um, keeping the kids organized. I've got three children. Um, they need to be kept busy, two boys and a girl, mashallah, they're very active at the age that they're at at the moment. Um, they train in this gym as well. So that's one of the things that we do together. They've just started to lift weights. So it's a really fun time for all of us at the moment. Um, you know, teaching them proper technique and, you know, doing things with them also uh, helps get through the day. Because I find that if I isolate myself from the kids, uh, it actually it's, it's worse for me. It's actually, it's harder for me to get because they're constantly interrupting. They're constantly opening the door and checking in with me. So when COVID hit, I actually created some house rules. So they were homeschooled uh, for a good six weeks because the schools closed. And um, we really had to set some ground rules. The first week was an absolute mess, an absolute mess. Their schedule merged into mine, family time merged into work time. And it was absolutely exhausting. And I know that I really do believe that the latest stats that came out are true to form. Women were the most adversely affected. Working mothers were the most adversely affected with this lockdown. Uh, and they continue to be, actually. Um, so I had to set some ground rules really quickly. So they weren't allowed to interrupt me between 9 and 11. Uh, they had a recess break where we could kind of all get together. They could ask me whatever questions they needed to do. We can catch up on um, what they needed help with. But then again, from 11.30 to 1.30, they also couldn't interrupt me either. So once we set those ground rules, we were both able to get through the tasks that we set before us. So really, it requires a lot of discipline, um, a lot of patience, a lot of understanding. But alhamdulillah, it's, uh, it's worked out well. Alhamdulillah. When I first spoke to you, I spoke to you through the whole death dollar situation. Um, there was a potential near-death in our family and so I remember I reached out to you but one of the things that I realized was after our conversation I was waiting for you to say to me okay well I'll help you blah 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 but here's how much I'm going to charge and I never saw that um, sort of conversation I never heard from you in terms of that you gave me all this information you sent me advice but then you never gave me an invoice <laughs> so my question here is do you make money off of what you do so the short answer is no. Um, as a death doula, it's purely a voluntary service. So whether I speak to you on one occasion or I meet with your family once or whether I stay with you for three months in that journey, this is my volunteer work that I do to give back. 
uh, I love it. I'm, I'm really, really passionate about the work that I do. And it almost feels wrong for me to take money um, for something that I'm doing for the sake of Allah, um, I guess. So that component of Sakina Funerals is uh, not something that I take money for. That's a free service. So then how do you make money? So I do this really um, exciting job called um, HR and governance consulting. <laughs> so I go into businesses uh, and I kind of do a, like a mini audit to see where they're at in terms of their governance. And I set up the structures that they need to put in place to ensure that they are compliant in the work that they do. So I do that across the not-for-profit sector as well as the for-profit sector. Um, and the last year or so, I've been doing work um, for NDIS clients who, uh, of course, it's, it's a big area uh, to move into. There's a lot of um, auditing that's done, initial auditing and then follow-up audits. So they need to stay on top of their, their, um, their governance and their uh, compliance modules. And that's what I, that's what I do to make money. Really exciting, yeah. <laughs> Other than reading books, how are you continually improving yourself? Okay, so I, I always consider myself to be still very much at the initial stages of being a student of knowledge. So um, I regularly listen to um, podcasts and uh, I guess lectures. I try to follow through with a series, um, especially when I go for long walks. So I just finished the Sahaba series by Yasser Qadi, which I absolutely loved. Um, we sometimes we um, can feel a disconnect between the stories of these amazing giants in our religion, right? That have lived experiences that are so similar to some of the problems and the challenges that we're seeing right now, right? Even though this was, you know, 1500 years ago, we can connect and learn so much from the way that they navigated their struggles, but we don't know who they are. So when I started this series, and honestly, it took me a month to get through it. It took me a month. Some of the, the, um, the personalities I had to listen to twice to really appreciate their stories. Um, so yes, I, I really love um, the stories of the companions. I also followed the Prophet series with um, Shaykh Shadi, and I, I listened to that with the children. I really try and get them to um, sit and listen to a lot of these stories as well. They're usually quite um, relevant. Uh, to even, even to the youth, even to like a 13, 14 year old, they can take a, away a lot from them. And also kids' concentration spans are so limited these days that we just need those really punchy kind of short reminders and, uh, and then they're kind of good to go. Um, so a lot of it is virtual. I, I'm really struggling to make it into a masjid or a musalla uh, these days, but I, I do want to inshallah get back on track when we can start attending Jummah. Um, more often yeah future aspirations what are you what are what are some of the plans from here so um i guess if i could click my fingers and have everything i wanted tomorrow um i'd probably be setting up a funeral service that uh best supports people in probably the biggest transition of their life which is losing someone close to them so i'd want to be able to um support them in every aspect of that journey um, even before death takes place so we're there supporting them preparing them for what's coming 
then at the time of death, whether it's making arrangements for, you know, where the, where the body's going to be washed, where it's going to be buried, how the janazah is going to be prayed upon, who's going to walk into that space as we're performing these rituals, really just lifting the shroud. Okay. I'm going to throw all these puns in cause I love these puns. Um, really just kind of demystifying the whole process and in doing so alleviating a lot of the anxiety around death and dying. So that's the type of service I want for the community. I think we're very much ready for it. You know, I would probably go as far as to say we're now starting to demand mm. a service like that. And I'd love to be at the service of my community to be able to provide something like that um, for, you know, for all of us. Mm. One thing that, that really petrifies me, to be honest, is I feel I've prepared the people around me for what I want at end of life. But what scares me is I haven't done enough work to ensure that there are people there for my children, right? When they are going to go yeah. through end of life. And this is this has now become a legacy I want to leave, mm. inshallah. Inshallah, and may, may Allah make it easy for you and you know, may Allah give you the, the barakah. I mean. If you met your younger self, so you know, you're walking at Maghrib time and you bumped into your younger self, right? What are the three pieces of advice you'd give her? I'd probably remind her that our ultimate goal is not to be as rich or as powerful or as comfortable as we possibly could in this dunya. Um, that this life is just a means to the akhirah. So I would remind her to keep that at the forefront of everything that she does. Uh, the second thing I'd probably say to her is, to maintain her drive and her passion and her goal seeking because this is one thing I believe I wanted someone to say to me, keep going at it, keep trying, don't give up, put everything, put, continue to put your heart and soul into everything that you do. It doesn't matter if you fail, right? I, I really did have a fear of failure, subhanAllah. I always had to be right. I always had to find a way to get things perfect first time round, But it's, it's okay to fail and to just take the learnings from those experiences and move forward. So that's the second piece of advice. The third piece of advice is um, no matter what happens in your life, always remember to maintain good akhlaq. Okay, so my younger self was quite impatient um, very, very impatient. Uh, I think um, the mature me has realized the virtue of patience, of showing mercy and being merciful to others, of um, not, not cursing, uh, not insulting other people, being mindful of the words that you say to others and your actions towards them. I think this is the third and final reminder that I would give her just to be more patient with people and more patient with herself. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and found it valuable. I'd love your support and feedback. You can do so by subscribing to the show and following it on Instagram at Corporate Majlis and sharing it with family and friends. Let me know what you thought of this episode as your feedback helps me tailor your experience for the better. Till next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.